Anyway, in the meantime, why don't you open Matthew uh, 19 as our text. Open your Bible or navigate on your device to Matthew 19. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. The topic, Jesus puts the brakes on the Jewish practice of divorce for any reason. The title of our message, Divorce Thwart. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate every opportunity we get to come together as a fellowship of believers we, we know that you attend those meetings as well because you promised that you would in the book of the Revelation. You're everywhere, Lord, of course, because you're God, you're omnipresent, but you're specially present when the church gathers together in a way to reveal yourself, Lord, in power and with grace and with authority. I pray that if there's any non-believers here today, Lord, that they would be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, that today would be their spiritual birthday as they come to know that though they're sinners, you're a savior and have died in their place. We sang about that, we'll talk about that, but it needs to come alive in their hearts. And for believers here today, Lord, as we talk about some sensitive issues, I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church and to each of us individually. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. When the grand boys visit, the house gets progressively messier as they bring out various toys. Zeke right now loves Jenga Boom. How many of you know what Jenga Boom is? Oh, it's great. How many of you know what Jenga is? All right, so I can talk to you. Uh, It's Jenga. It's that game where you stack up blocks, but you do it on a platform that you wind up and it counts down to a catastrophic explosion, uh, throwing your blocks all over the place. And Zeke just loves it, except that he likes to knock down the blocks before it explodes. But anyway, we have fun with it. And when Gene and Kelly come to pick up the boys, they always say, let's put away the toys. They never say to the boys, let's divorce the toys. Now, why would they? Well, here in Matthew 19, we're going to see the words divorce and put away. We assume in Matthew 19, they mean the same thing, but they don't. Have you read in Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce? The Hebrew text of that verse uses the word shalak, which is the Hebrew word to mean to put or to send away. Yet the modern English translations all choose the word divorce, which is an entirely different Hebrew word. It's not found in the Hebrew text of the prophet Malachi. They equate putting away with divorce. And it's crucial we understand this distinction because being put away and being divorced were two entirely different matters in the first century. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God's design for your marriage comes from the garden. And number two, God's dynamic for your marriage comes by grace. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 10, God's design for your marriage and what it has to do with the Garden of Eden. Now, among the Jews, a wife could be put away by her husband without any legal intervention. It was usually an arbitrary action by the husband, not subject to the wife's consent. There was no legal form. There was no court. There was no judge. The husband just kicked his wife out. When a husband wanted to put away his wife for any reason, No one could hinder him from doing it. If a man got tired of his wife, he simply could send her out of the house. In our society, we would say that he had kicked her out of the house. The dismissed wife was in a kind of legal limbo. She was technically still a married woman. 
As a wife who had been abandoned, she would have very difficult time surviving if she did not have her original family at least to go back to. Remarriage to another man was highly unlikely since the circumstances of her dismissal by her husband put a stigma upon her. That is the background to this text. So let's get into it beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him and he healed them there. Matthew noted that Jesus was healing multitudes. How tragic that against a backdrop of alleviating all manner of human pain and suffering, every kind of disease and illness, Uh, demon possession, everything that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew, against that backdrop, the Pharisees are coming to accuse Jesus to try to stumble him. You would think they would come upon this scene and see multitudes of people receiving healings and be embarrassed that they want to challenge Jesus, that they would think, hey, this really isn't the time. Look at the good that he's doing. But they countermanded all of that, and they said, hey, we don't really care about what the Lord is doing for other people. We want to have this discussion with him to seek to trap him. A lot of times people want to engage you in things that are really not significant. They're really not important. Uh, There's some side issue. We want to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 3, the Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, this might be a good time to read the passage from Deuteronomy that forms the background for this question. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. I'll begin in verse 1 where it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." A Bible scholar by the name of J. Carl Laney explains the historical setting with some cynicism when he says, and I quote, men were putting away their wives for a weekend fling and then taking them back when the dirty laundry had piled up and the house needed cleaning. And so this is what was happening in their society. I read an article this week about a Japanese woman asking her husband for a divorce because he admitted he doesn't like the movie Frozen. How many of you have seen Frozen? Apparently not everyone wants to build a snowman. The judge who was going to hear the case looked at it and he said, just let it go. (laughs) Anyway, Moses addressed this terrible practice of putting away wives. He called for the husband to give the dismissed wife a certificate of divorce. You can read the boilerplate certificate of divorce that was used in Bible times. The language still exists. It's a little too long for me to read it now, but I will say that it is all very positive towards the put-away wife with no mention of any wrongdoing on her part or no use of the word uncleanness or anything like that. It's a document that she would have that clears her 
and obviously frees her to remarry because that is what the Deuteronomy account says, that she now can remarry another man. God demonstrated his concern for the put-away wife, for the abandoned wife, by requiring that her husband give her a legal bill of divorce. This would remove any stigma from her and enable her to legally remarry. This powerfully illustrates that God does not hold the offended party to blame, but sets them free. It's a glimpse into the heart of God, and it's an important one to have in any discussion of divorce and remarriage, because no matter how biblical we attempt to be, there are always going to be some dicey gray areas, and we're gonna have to fall back on the fact that God is merciful and gracious to the offended party. Bear in mind, too, that this passage in Deuteronomy is a command regulating remarriage. It isn't really a passage spelling out the grounds for divorce. It deals with a very specific issue. That is, if a wife is divorced, can she return to her previous husband after a subsequent marriage? And Moses said, no. Um, While we're here, what about that? In our society, what would we say to that? On the basis of Deuteronomy, we would say that that's wrong. We had a couple in the church many, many years ago in the 80s who had been married and divorced and remarried to each other five times. They just really liked honeymooning, I guess. But uh, so what would we say? We have to be careful saying that things are cultural or that they don't apply to us. But the truth is some things don't apply to us. And what people like to do with the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is say, well, here's something that you need to obey Yeah, but we're not gonna do this. For example, there's a lot of other crazy rules about marriage in the Old Testament. Because Israel was a tribal society, if your brother died childless, then you were required to sleep with his wife so that she could have children in his name. (laughs) I don't see anybody arguing that we're under that law anymore. And so this thing with the remarriage to the former husband, it has to do, I think, with the fact that it was a tribal society. It has to do with lineages and names and those kinds of things. And so, you know, I mean, I don't know why anybody would want to get divorced and marry somebody else and then remarry their first husband, but uh, it's not prohibited by Deuteronomy 24. It's not really about us. Now, Deuteronomy does say in... Uh, a, a more universal sense. It says, because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. What exactly is meant by uncleanness? Well, there are at least eight valid but conflicting scholarly answers to that question. The most popular one is that it must be some sort of sexual sin, but that is unlikely because the law of Moses already prescribed severe penalties for sexual sin, like stoning to death, not divorce. Besides, the text says the second husband writes her a certificate of divorce simply because he detests her. So whatever happens in the first marriage, whatever an uncleanness is, doesn't repeat itself in the second marriage. He just wakes up one morning and says, I don't like you. I detest you. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Go away. This woman struggled with self-esteem issues, I'm sure. Nobody wanted her around. But you see what I'm saying? So this uncleanness, probably not sexual sin, we don't know what it is, and I don't think we're likely to ever find out. 
The woman is perfectly free to remarry, and any subsequent marriages are deemed legal as long as she doesn't remarry a previous spouse. And so taken as a whole, the passage discourages divorce, prohibiting remarrying a former spouse in Israel, but it also establishes the importance of putting away a wife only if she's given a certificate of divorce that protects her and gives her the freedom to remarry. Now, the interpretation of uncleanness divided two schools of Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, famous first century Jewish scholars, and this was the impetus for their question, can a man marry a, a divorce his wife for any cause? They wanted Jesus' take on this uncleanness. Rabbi Hillel took a very lax view and said that the husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason, while Rabbi Shammai took the stricter view and said Moses was speaking only about certain cases of sexual sin. The Jews were, in fact, putting away their wives for any reason at all. Jesus first attempted to elevate their thinking by taking them back to the beginning of marriage. And so his answer, beginning in verse four, says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Instead of going back to Deuteronomy, Jesus went back to Genesis. He wanted them and he wants us to understand God's design for marriage when he brought Eve to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And you know, this is a great way of answering Bible questions for yourself and for others. A lot of times, the, our questions have to do with certain um, uh, parameters and boundaries and limitations. It's, this question is really, how far can I go and still be following God? What are the parameters in, in which I am still considered to be obeying God? And Jesus said, why are you even concerned about that? Why don't you go to the ideal case and ask God for grace to live there? Why do you want to follow Jesus from a distance when you could follow him closely? Why do you wanna know about divorcing your wife when you should be loving her the way I love the church? It's that kind of a thing. And, and so a lot of times the questions we struggle with, they're, I guess they're worth answering, but we're answering them in the wrong way and we should tell people, hey, why are you even asking that? You should be over here enjoying your relationship with the Lord. Now here's a quick but insightful summary of God's design for marriage from Genesis. It is a divinely appointed physical and spiritual union of one man and one woman that is to be permanent as long as they both shall live. Later passages in the Bible answer specific questions about marriage and about human sexuality, but the union of Adam and Eve addresses those questions by way of God's example. Almost everything you really need to know about marriage and human sexuality can be derived from just looking at what God established in the garden. For example, sex is to be between one man and one woman, not between two men or two women or with multiple partners. It is to be practiced within the context of marriage, not before you are married or with another with whom you are not married. And biblical marriage is to be honored and guarded and protected. Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, walking with and communing with God, naked but unashamed, that's what God thinks about marriage. He meant it for our good to bring joy and increase pleasure for us. As believers indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, we ought to focus on God's ideal for every area, including marriage, 
rather than ask how we can lower our appreciation of his standards but still be walking with him. I guess what I'm saying is you should never need to understand why Moses regulated the putting away of wives with a certificate of divorce to use a common idiom, don't even go there. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, don't even go there. You shouldn't be worried about how and when and how easy to divorce your wife. You should be worried about and thinking about the joys of marriage. You should be modeling marriage the way God meant it to be because after all, you are the people of God. Verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They're just not gonna let go of this. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Now, both Jewish schools of thought, uh, they said the passage in Deuteronomy was a command to give a certificate of divorce. But Moses gave only one commandment in that passage. The divorced wife could not return to her first husband if she was put away by a subsequent husband. That's all that that passage is addressing. Moses did not command divorce. He merely regulated it. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Once again, the word for divorces is put away. Jesus was referring to the necessity of a certificate of divorce, giving the offended spouse the right to remarry. Without it, the parties are still bound legally, and so any subsequent marriages would be adulterous based on the Genesis account, which presents marriage as a permanent earthly union. Putting away a spouse would be similar to what we call separation. The marriage still exists, so sex with someone other than your spouse or remarriage constitutes sexual sin. Now, talking about divorce and remarriage causes stress because just about every one of us has been involved directly or indirectly with divorce. And many of those divorces are what we would have to call unbiblical because they were for reasons other than the one Jesus gives here and that the Bible gives elsewhere. And so it's a very uncomfortable subject for many people. I'm teaching it this morning in the context of God being for those who are offended, of God being the protector and the helper of those who are uh, needing protection and help who have, are, are the offended folks in this situation. He was addressing Jewish practices, but as he did, he does establish biblical grounds for a divorce that would allow the innocent, wounded party to dissolve the marriage and be free to remarry, and those grounds are what Jesus calls sexual immorality. It's the more modern translation of the word fornication. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word fornication includes things like incest and sodomy and harlotry and perversion and bestiality and really all sexual sin both before and after or during marriage. I don't mean to be crude, but do you remember the Monica Lewinsky scandal? Then President Clinton, when he gave his deposition in the Paula Jones case, said he had never had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky he had a rather narrow view of what constitutes sexual relations. The Bible would call what he was doing fornication, and it very definitely was sexually immoral. Adultery is fornication committed by a married man or woman. Now, there are those who argue that fornication does not give you grounds for divorce and remarriage. 
They narrow the word's meaning in various ways, such as they try to say it only refers to sexual immorality during the betrothal and therefore before the marriage, but after you get married, it no longer is in effect, and no matter what happens, no matter how sexually immoral a spouse might be, you're bound to that marriage for the rest of your life, and if you get a divorce, you are not capable of uh, remarriage. Now that actually, this is just a logical thing, but it sets up a situation where you have less grace under the new covenant than you had under the old covenant. Because under the old covenant, if, you, if your spouse committed adultery, what would happen to them? Well, legally, they were stoned to death, freeing you to remarry. But now these people are saying that under the new covenant, your spouse just goes on doing what he wants to do and you are uh, locked in that terrible relationship or if you divorce, you can never remarry. And that is not grace and that is not God being for the offended, wounded party. And so that's just wrong on many levels. Jesus gives sexual immorality as an exception, freeing the innocent, wounded party from the marriage. Now, at the same time, he wasn't commanding a divorce when there is fornication. He wasn't saying that if your partner commits adultery, you have to get a divorce. He was only permitting it. Many marriages have survived the sexual immorality of one or both spouses who have repented and been granted forgiveness, and I think this should always be sought. Is it more spiritual to stay together? We tend to think that it is. Those are the testimonies that seem to be highlighted. But if Jesus gives you a choice, a real choice, a sincere choice, then what is most spiritual is how he directs you in your particular situation. Do you understand that? Jesus is giving you a real option here. It's not one you want to jump into or take lightly, but it is real and it's no less spiritual because it comes from the lips of the Lord. If you were to ask me, or most evangelical Orthodox Christians, the Bible gives two clear grounds for divorce, sexual immorality, as we're reading about here, and abandonment by a non-believing spouse, which is taught by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's our position, and we're sticking to it. Having said that, it's not always so cut and dried, is it? For example, let's say your spouse is involved in pornography. The word fornication is actually a translation of pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. Is it grounds for divorce? And if it is, how deeply must the offending spouse be involved in it before it becomes grounds for divorce? What exactly constitutes abandonment? It sounds like it would be an easy thing to decide, but it's not. What about physical abuse or mental or verbal abuse? Are those types of abandonment? And again, we must ask, how severe must they become? Let me step out of the study for a minute and just say something I always say when we're talking about these things. No woman should ever stand for any physical abuse. If you are ever physically abused, then you should call the police. And then we will deal with the, you know, what happens afterwards. We would never tell a woman to stay in an abusive situation. All right, so is that clear? All right. Are you really gonna tell a woman being abused to endure it because her dirtbag husband won't abandon her and isn't sleeping with another woman? This happens. People call churches. My husband just beat me up. Okay, is he a believer? He says he is. Is he committing adultery? No, not to my knowledge. Then God has grace for you. Just endure it. 
you better call another church. You better call us. And we say, hey, get off the phone, dial 911, and then call us after he's been incarcerated. And it'll all work out. There is, this is where that, what I mentioned earlier comes into play. God wants to protect the innocent, not add to their misery. He was concerned about the plight of the wife who was being unjustly put away, and he stepped in to regulate the hardness of men's hearts so that she was set free to remarry. He is no less gracious today under the new covenant. One conservative but insightful commentator put it this way, and I, I think it's good. He says, in summary, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? The answer is sexual immorality and abandonment. Are there additional grounds for divorce beyond these two? Possibly. Is divorce ever to be treated lightly or employed as the first recourse? Absolutely not. That's as close as I think we can come to a reasonable answer. Within the framework of the two biblical grounds revealed for divorce, we need to struggle with each situation and its unique details, holding to the sanctity of marriage as it was originally modeled, but extending grace to innocents who are the victims of sin. Now in verses 11 and 12, since we mentioned grace, God's dynamic for your marriage comes by grace. The disciples are totally freaked out by this teaching. Suddenly, marriage was a whole lot more serious than their culture had taught them. They had what we would call a knee-jerk reaction in verse 10, and his disciples said to him, if that's the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to get married. And so these guys wanted to abandon marriage altogether because they couldn't divorce their wife for any reason. Instead of following Jesus into the Garden of Eden and renewing their appreciation of marriage, they were concerned about getting out of a potentially bad marriage. So you see, what Jesus was doing, it's what he always does, we're on this level thinking, I'm having trouble in my marriage, I wonder if I can get out of it, what do I need to do to file for divorce? And the Lord comes along and he says, how about you take a look at marriage the way it was meant to be and recognize your part in destroying this marriage and get my grace and be the husband or be the wife that you're supposed to be and kind of live in the garden. And his disciples just weren't getting it. They said, well, forget the garden. I just, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. They were looking at marriage the way a lot of people do, including Christians. They were looking at it selfishly from the perspective of how it might always, not always be beneficial for them, but it could sometimes actually involve self-sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Being married and sacrificing? They thought of it as something to be endured rather than enjoyed. I'd add this too, they weren't thinking of marriage in terms of submitting to God to bring him glory. They weren't thinking of it as a ministry to him for him. You know, your marriage, whatever else it is, since it's a gift from God, is a ministry that you perform for the Lord. Now, he gives you the strength and the grace to do it, but it's for him. Now, Jesus, uh, Jesus addressed their consternation by being very practical. He says in verse 11, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, meaning their idea that you could remain single, but only those to whom it has been given or have special grace. And then he said, there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. <clears throat> a textbook eunuch is typically a man who has been castrated, usually early enough in his life for this change to have hormonal consequences. Jesus made his point by describing three types of eunuchs. Some men are eunuchs because they were born that way. Secondly, others are that way because they were castrated by men. 
Oriental rulers often subjected the harem attendants to surgery to make them eunuchs. And third, Jesus also had in mind those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. This is more of a spiritual operation, not a physical one. These men could be married. They have no physical impairment, yet in dedication to Jesus, they forego marriage in order to give themselves to the cause of Christ. As Paul later wrote, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And the Apostle Paul, session one of marriage counseling with the Apostle Paul is, why don't you consider staying single so that you can serve the Lord? And then after everybody says, no, that's not gonna work, then he says, okay, well, let's talk about marriage. Understand there's nothing wrong with marriage. Marriage is blessed, but you aren't going to be able to serve the Lord quite the same way because you have different responsibilities. So their celibacy is not physical, but a matter of voluntary abstinence. Jesus reminded them that the ability to remain single and therefore celibate was not the general rule for men and women. Only those to whom special grace was given could forego marriage. Now I wanna say something about people being born that way. It's a pretty broad statement by Jesus and therefore it can include any number of things and we hear this a lot today. People say in the area of human sexuality, well, I was born that way. Um, well, I'm not sure where the scientific community is right now or I should say where the evidence is for something like same-sex attraction it's usually quite conflicting. I'm willing to concede that some people are born with same-sex attraction. But even if a person is born that way, it is not an excuse they must act upon their drives and impulses that scripture determines to be sinful. And this is the part of the discussion that we usually don't get to because we're so much arguing about the other stuff. Okay, if you were born that way, that's great. It doesn't mean you can sin. Nick Rowan is a Master of Divinity student at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He has a burden to help the church think through issues regarding sexuality, singleness, and celibacy. He's burdened because he is a Christian with same-sex attraction. He wrote the following. Same-sex attraction is the result of a broken creation, and in that sense, it is sinful and dishonorable, just as we are told in Romans chapter 1. It is an effect of the fall. However, experiencing same-sex attraction is not the same as sinning. Rather, same-sex attraction should be treated like any temptation to sin. They should be fought with blood earnestness in a way that recognizes the deceitfulness of the heart and the finitude of the mind. When I do this, when I fight temptation, turn to Jesus, trust his promises, and rely on his spirit, God is pleased. He is not mainly displeased because I need to fight. He is pleased because I am fighting. This is good news for all of us who experience all manner of temptations. May this fact lead us, no matter our particular groaning, to rest in Jesus more deeply, fight temptation more fiercely, and look forward to the day when our fight of faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rohn has suggested that sanctified singleness is the solution we should proclaim. He puts it this way, 
If we are going to ask those who struggle with same-sex attraction to reject their longings as long as the Lord wills, then we must have a strong theology of singleness that does not present it as a simply transitional stage on the way to marriage. It seems that in many churches, marriage is assumed for everyone, and when it doesn't happen for certain people, they are left wondering if the church is a place where they can truly belong. Now, I know that uh, and this is just me talking now, I know that for a decade or, or more, a couple of decades, the church has been struggling with homosexuality, and usually the church is pretty, um, I don't know what the word I would use, pretty militant when it comes to dealing with that whole issue. I've begun talking about it in the context of same-sex attraction. So let's say if a guy comes to church for the first time, say, hey, I'm new to Calvary Chapel, how are you? I don't ask him, are you ever attracted to women that are not your wife? Well, I mean, the answer to that is what? Oh, my answer is no, but your answer would be yes. I mean, Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're what? You've committed adultery, and you can't tell me that men don't struggle with this, but we don't, we don't make you any kind of a second-class Christian. We just deal with it if you sin. And so what I'm saying is that there is such a thing as same-sex attraction. It's sin to act upon it. And there are those who recognize that it's sin to act upon and are willing to say, then I guess God has made me a eunuch in this area because his word clearly says this is sin and I have to struggle against it. And these people need to feel welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to have a sanctified view of singleness rather than the fear that we have. I don't know that I believe in homophobia, but I understand where that kind of thinking comes from because the church says nothing positive to people who struggle with same-sex attraction except that you're a loser. We don't want you here. Get out of here. And you know, over the years, you all have known people who you love that have same-sex attraction. And you've wondered what to say to them. This is what you say to them. If God made you that way, then you have to struggle within the parameters that God has set. And guess what? He has grace for you whether you're attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex. And we all need to avail ourselves of that grace. There's a whole lot of opposite sex sin going on all the time in the church. It doesn't bother us as much as it should. And so we need to get our mind clear on this, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, see people get saved, and then, like all of us have to do, struggle against the temptation to whatever sin it is that we are drawn to. Jesus said, he was able to accept this, let him accept it. You accept a gift. So here Jesus is indicating that to remain celibate, whether by choice or not, it has to be a gift from God in the sense of you receive his grace. You're gonna need his grace in marriage just as much. You can be assured it is available to you, but you must avail yourself of it. And so Jesus is elevating our thinking on the whole subject of human uh, sexuality, marriage, and all of this into the Garden of Eden. That's where we wanna hang out. Marriage is not about you. It is about God. It is about pleasing God by submitting to one another and stepping into the roles he has established, the roles of husband and wife with their corresponding duties and delights. So when I say, hey, that's the way God made me, I'm also saying that's the way I am in this fallen world. 
It's not to say, well, God made me this way, therefore he wants me to act this way. No, no, we've all been tainted by sin. If, if I gave in to the particular temptations I have, it would be just as bad. And so, yeah, maybe the God made me that way idea is that this is the situation I find myself in in a fallen world. God's always the final authority. His word always speaks true. And so, you know, I know it's, it might be hard for somebody to say, so are you saying that if I struggle with same-sex attraction and I can't overcome that, then I can never fulfill that desire? My answer is you can never fulfill that desire in a sinful way because God hates sin. And your pleasing God for the rest of your life is a lot more important than this struggle. And God has grace for you. I think we're clear. Now, maybe you're mulling over something that was read or said and have questions about your own unique situation. This has been like a bomb going off, right? I mean, just wow, where did that come from? All of this stuff. Uh, we'd love to pray with you or talk with you in order to determine the direction God has for you in the context of grace. God is for you, not against you. If you're in sin, he wants you to repent and be restored. If you're struggling, he has grace for you. He is for the wounded, offended person, not against them. You should be under no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Whatever direction the Lord has for you, he has grace sufficient for you to walk with him according to his will so your life can be a testimony to his glory. Let's pray.